This morning's scripture reading comes from excerpts from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. This is God's word. <clears throat> For the past several months, we've been looking at what it means to be a Christian. And what you learn as you attend the church as you uh, look into scripture, you learn that there's a language associated with being a Christian. There are words like sin and brokenness. There are words like repentance. These are words that we may not even really like or understand fully, but words like repentance and renewal. Today we're going to look into what it means to obey. And, uh, and this is probably one of this passage that we're looking at today is probably one of the best passages uh, in the Bible that I think that's going to help us understand why we obey, what it really means to obey. In order to get into this text, I need to give you a little bit of a background about the book of Exodus because we're looking at chapters 5 through 10. Here we have Moses. Moses was raised in royalty in Egypt and through a series of circumstances took a huge detour in his life and he com basically he committed a capital crime and now he's in the desert. He's in the wilderness. And uh, in the desert, he encounters the real God. And God sends Moses back to the Pharaoh in Egypt. It's been decades now. He sends him back with a message. Let my people go that they may worship me. That they may worship me in the desert. Now, the first time the Pharaoh hears this message from Moses is chapter 5. And in chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh responds. And he says, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And that's what triggers the plagues 
these great plagues that we've seen movies about and have read about and have heard about. What triggers the plagues in Exodus chapters 5 through 10 is Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? What are these plagues about? What do they mean? They answer the question, why should we obey God? Just like Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey him? There are three answers as to why. First is because God is a singular God. There's none like him in all the earth. Second, he's a creator God. He's the designer God. And because he's our creator, he's our king. And lastly, he's the redeemer God. He's a singular God. He's the creator God. He's the redeemer God. First, we're going to look at the singular aspect of God. When Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He's not saying that because he's an atheist. He's saying that because the Pharaoh lived in a culture that believed in many gods. He had many gods. Mainly what he's saying is, Moses, you, I get it. You have your understanding of God. I have my understanding of God. Who are you to impose your understanding of God on me? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to you? That's how most people today feel. That's how most people today uh, think. So the first plague, which is the judging of the Nile River, is very carefully chosen. Why is that? It's because the Nile River, to the Egyptians in that ancient period, those ancient times, was a god. It was their source of life. It was their source of commerce. It was their source of food. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. What does God do? He turns the river into blood. Blood representing death. Blood representing judgment. The second to the last plague was darkness. Why? Because the Egyptians worshipped the sun. The Egyptians worshipped the moon. They were the gods. You have the stories of Osiris and Isis. It originated in that era, in that period, in that region, prevalent long before Moses' time in Egypt. What does God do? He makes the sun go dark. He makes the moon go dark. And in chapter 7, verse 17, he says, By this they will know that I am the Lord. In chapter 9, right before the hailstorm, the plague of the hailstorms, God says that they may know that there is none like me in all the earth. We say, you have your gods, I have mine. God says, no way, no way. I am singular. I am unique. There is none like me, none like me in all the earth. I may be bigger. I may be more powerful. The others, they are not real. I am real. That's what God is saying here. That's the first point. Second point, he's the creator of God. We're going to spend some time on this one. One of the things that people notice when they're studying uh, this part of the book of Exodus, they notice that in a sense the plagues, they were, they're oftentimes depicted in movies, in books. Uh, we see them depicted as very dramatic but if you look at it from a different dimension, if you look at it from a different angle, the plagues were not very special. They were not very special. In the first plague, you have the Nile turning to blood. No one can drink the Nile. God did something uh, particular to the Nile. Scholars are debating what actually happened to the Nile. But no matter what you believe happened, one thing we know for sure is that the ecosystem of the Nile was destroyed. And if you think about it, most of the plagues cascade from that first plague. So the plagues, in a sense, are very natural. The Nile, first of all, becomes uninhabitable. 
And so what happens? That was the first plague. The Nile River turns to blood. It becomes uninhabitable. And so what happens? You have the second plague. You have the frogs. The frogs all come out of the Nile, and they're all spreading out into the region, into the area, and what happens? They all die. And so you have the first plague and the second plague, and as a result of the second plague, all the frogs, they're dying, they're rotting. You have the third and fourth plagues, right? Because they're dead, because you have these rotting frogs, you have the plague of the gnats and the plague of the flies. All these things so far are natural consequences. You have an ecological disaster. You have this environmental disaster. But then because of the gnats and because of the flies, what do you have? Epidemics. The livestock is decimated. That's the next plague. And now you have, the, you have ecological disaster, environmental disaster. Now you have the livestock. You have disease spreading everywhere. And as a result, what happens? You have skin diseases, the boils. That's the sixth plague. Then you have the plague of the hail and then the locusts. And then you have darkness, seven, eight, and nine. All these plagues, natural. We've seen these things before. They're natural. Most of them are consequences, cascading from the first plague. Now, if the purpose of the plagues is just to prove the existence and the power of God, God could have done something much more supernatural, so to speak. He could have done something much more. He could have done other things. Moses could have walked into the palace of the Pharaoh the first time around, rolled up his sleeves and said, okay, everyone, I'm going to show you that who sent me. I'm going to show you that an all-powerful supreme God has sent me. And he could have set some official there on fire, right? And, you know, bolt of lightning, set the official on fire, and basically everyone starts gasping and they're horrified. And he could have looked at Pharaoh in dramatic fashion and said, you are next. He could have done that. And the Pharaoh would have fallen to his knees. The Pharaoh would have fallen to his knees out of fear. Why is it that it isn't until almost the very end of this part of the narrative that Moses actually comes to Pharaoh. It's because the plagues, these plagues have a message. They bear a message. What's the message? Scholars have been noting for decades that the disasters in Exodus chapters 5 through 10 are merely an undoing of creation. Everything that you see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is being undone. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what is that? It's, it's a creation account. So on one hand, yes, it is supernatural. What you're seeing is a supernatural work of God. But what do they mean? It's nature going out of control. Nature breaking down, and as a result, nature is eating itself. Nature is rolling back up like a scroll. Nature is reverting backwards into chaos and darkness all the way up until before creation began. Now, what's Genesis chapter 1 and 2? If you ever read the first book of the Bible, God takes these elements. He takes the sun. He takes the moon. He takes land and water. He takes animals and plant life, man, uh, male and female. He turns all these things into an ecological system, right? What he does is he, he turns them into an integrated, coherent whole. Nature is literally humming beautifully as one. Everything's working together. Everything's working harmoniously together in perfection. Paradise, characterized by beauty and thriving and wholeness and light and order. But here, what you're seeing in Exodus chapters 5 through 10, what do you see? Everything is actually going backwards. Everything's working the opposite. 
order and creation are now undoing itself. Weather is destroying animals. Insects are destroying plant life. And so on and on, up until the ninth plague, everything is working backwards. You see plant life and animal life, male and female, light. What happens at the end, the ninth plague, all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1? Darkness. The earth becomes with void, without form. Chaos. Darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Water, incidentally, you come back all the way to the first, first play. Water is, always represents in the Old Testament chaos, mystery, the unknown, uncertainty. There's a sense, if you're a sailor in the waters in those ancient times, no matter how sure you were, no matter how good you were as a seafarer, there's always the element of uncertainty. There's no control. Darkness and water, that's what you see. That's Genesis chapter 1. Darkness and water. There was darkness. There was chaos. When the Spirit of, come, the Spirit of God comes, what happens? The darkness turns to light and there's order. You see the unraveling of, of, the, of the power of God in His Word. And what he does is he brings light where there's darkness, order where there's chaos. Do you see that? What you learn from the plagues here are very important because God is saying, my power, my word, my law, my commands, my authority, they are absolutely critical to obey. Everything I do, everything I say, I'm telling you to do because it's natural. That's how you were created. That's how you were designed. It teaches you, his laws teach us how to live according to our design, according to his beautiful, marvelous work in creation. And every time you disobey, the consequences are not supernatural. The consequences are natural. It's a part of your design. And life starts to cascade into disorder and chaos. Think about this. Imagine in creation, God says, let there be light. You know, God, his words have uh, his words themselves have creation power. When you say, let there be light, somebody actually has to go, turn on the switch, and then behind that switch, somebody out there in some place in the city is cranking some generator to make sure that you have light. Your words do not have creative power. But God, when he says, let there be light, light has created, there's creation power. There's creation power. It's Jesus Christ sustaining and governing the world. That's what he says. That's who he is. But imagine God says, let there be light. And as he's creating the sun and the moon, they say, no, I refuse. I'm on strike. What's the result? Darkness. God is saying through the plagues, I get it. You think you are king. You think you're a king. In a sense, you are. God established Adam as a vice king in Genesis chapter 2. So in a sense you are, but you think you're the king because you own a home. You think you're the king because people call you a director. You think you are the king because you own something, because you're a father, because you're a creative person. You see, what God is saying is, I am the owner. I am the governor. I am the father of creation itself. Who gave you your job? Who gave you your job? Who gave you your bank account? Who gave you your looks or your figure? Who gave you your intelligence and your brain? Who gave you your relationships, those treasured relationships that we have? 
Who gave you your children? Every child we know is a miracle. And what have you done with your job? What have you done with your wealth and your looks and your intelligence and your relationships and your family? To disobey God. God is saying to disobey me is to unleash the forces. Not a, it's not supernatural. It's to unleash the forces of chaos and disorder in your life. And it's natural. It's natural because everything around you, you are violating your creative design and purpose. Why do we even have a law when you become a Christian? It's because being a Christian, it doesn't make you free from your creative design. It doesn't make you free from who you are, how God has created you to be. Being a Christian frees you to live according to that design. It affirms your design. To disobey God and any of his laws, natural chaos, disintegration. If nature has been bonded together and created in perfect harmony and array in the creation account, to disobey God's law is to send us into natural chaos, disorder, entropy, darkness. That's the darkness. That's why we have that penultimate uh, plague. And we feel it, we experience it, it plagues you. It corrodes your life. I'm going to give you a very uh, a vivid example. Let's say you go to your doctor. And uh, my doctor, he's a, he's a friend from high school. I specifically chose him uh, as, as my doctor because I figure at my age, I need somebody who's going to tell it to me straight. And, um, and suppose your doctor says to you, listen, you have to stop eating fatty foods. You have, I know you go to Krispy Kreme. You've got to stop eating Krispy Kreme. You have to stop consuming all the sugar and all that spicy food. You have to stop eating steak. You need to run more. You need to exercise. You need to stop straining. You are filled with so much stress in your life. You have to stop overworking those long hours. Now, when you hear that, you don't like to hear that. We don't like constraints in our lives. We don't like uh, anyone telling us what we can do and can't do, right? It hurts. But it's very important to listen to your doctor. Why? Because he's an authority. He's an authority in that particular area of your life. And so his commands, his directives, they reflect the nature of you, how you were created, how you were designed. He's trying to show you a way to live in a way that's going to honor the fabric of your design so that you will thrive and flourish and actually be free. To be free is not to have no uh, commands, no restrictions in your life, no constraints. It's actually, so, those restrictions are in your life. Those constraints are in your life so that you will actually be free. No one's going to go to jail if you disobey those commands. No one's going to arrest you if you disobey those commands. But if you, suppose you stop, uh, let's say you don't stop eating fatty foods. You continue to eat fatty foods. You know what you say, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to eat even more Krispy Kreme. <laughs> I'm going to consume even more sugar. I'm going to take even more uh, Coca-Cola, right? It sounds ridiculous. I'm going to eat even more spicy foods. Suppose you don't stop eating steak. You don't exercise. I'm just going to watch TV all day. I'm going to continue to overwork at night. What's going to happen? Your body, your life starts to unravel. You, as you were created, your body will start to explode into chaos like the plagues. It begins with weight gain high cholesterol. That's going to lead to a sluggishness and a lethargy. 
Then you're going to start snoring at night. Nobody in the house gets to sleep. And then so you're going to be restless. And while you're restless, you're going to keep overworking. So then it's going to develop hypertension. And that hypertension and strain up until what? You have a heart attack. Your body literally explodes into chaos. That's what's going to happen. You see that? God's authority is like that, except he's not just an authority. He's the author. He's the creator. He is the actual creator, the author. He knows every dimension, every dimension. Uh, he knows all, every part of you, what makes life coherent for you, physically and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually, sexually, every way. Why should we obey God? Why should we obey God? God is speaking to us, not just simply as our king, saying it's because I'm bigger than you, it's because I'm your authority. God's rules are there because he created us. And he loves us. And he is so faithful. And he's saying, listen, this is how you take care of yourself. This is how you will thrive. This is how you will flourish. My commands are a reflection of me. And you were built in that image. And so you have to conform and you have to affirm that image. You are an image bearer. You were wonderfully created as an image bearer of your creator. And as a result, you have to live in accordance with how you were built. And so he begins with this great command, you will have no other gods before me. In other words, you just can't come to church occasionally. You just can't come to church when you feel like it. You just can't come to church, uh, you know, circumstantially. You can't just say, well, I, I believe in God. That's not what he's saying. God has to be more important to you than your family. God has to be more important to you than your job. Your relationship with God has to be more important to you than your work. It's got to be the single greatest defining factor, the only defining factor in your life. That means it's going to be more important to you than your work. The way you pour into your work and your family and job, you sum all those things up and all the worth that you put into it. And he says, I want you to take that and direct it, redirect it, reorient it to your love for me. Build your identity on me. That's what he's saying. And if you don't do any, you don't, you, that's got to be more important than anything else. Because if you don't, think about it. Why are we so miserable in our lives? Why are we so miserable? It's not because God is this cosmic loan shark. And he's saying, I'm coming to collect now. I'm going to break your legs because you abandoned my law. You owe me. We're miserable not because God's like that. It's actually quite the opposite. We've abandoned our design and we're experiencing cosmic disintegration because of that. You know what's pathetic about the human condition? You know what's pathetic about who we are? We think, we, we are staring every single time that we place another God before us. It's like looking at the source of power and saying, I need to go look for power. The source of beauty and saying, you know what, I need to go look for beauty. It's like looking at the source of wisdom and saying, I'm going to find wisdom elsewhere. And we pour it into such, such small things in our lives. We pour, we are so pathetic because what we do is we cling to needy beings. We cling to needy beings and needy things uh, as our primary source of worth. That's what we do. And so, and we crave that. We need these things in our lives. We're desperate for these things in our lives. Oh, and we, talk, we know how to talk the talk. We come to the church and we know how to speak Christian. 
The gospel shows us a much deeper language, a deeper obedience than that. That's what this is about. If you make your work more important than God, and so for years and years you're overworking, what happens? First of all, what happens is your family starts to deem you irrelevant. Your family starts to fall apart. You become irrelevant in your family. That's disintegration. That's the beginning. And then what happens is, here's family, this so, the single probably most important series of relationships in your life, and they've already, in a way, deemed you irrelevant in certain dimensions. But then when something goes wrong at work, what happens? That combined with your family issues, now you're becoming emotionally, you're emotionally disintegrating. You start to feel anxious. That anxiety, and also because you're slightly irrelevant in your family, a little bit more irrelevant in your family, right? There's a loneliness. There's a restlessness. There's an anxiety. Now, because of the restlessness and anxiety, there's physical disintegration, psychological disintegration. And it's because you're trying, you, there's this need to keep everything together in your life. And what happens is it starts to leave you very fatigued. Just like in Egypt, our plagues are a consequence Our plagues are a cascade of natural consequences that stem from our disobedience to God's commands and His laws, what He desires, His purpose in our lives. And as a result, our lives are returning to chaos. They're returning to misery. They're returning to darkness. The very word disintegration means what? Things are falling apart that were once coherent. Things are falling apart that were once integrated are now disintegrated. They're disjoining. That's what's happening. Because we've gone against our design. Some of you drive German cars, fine-tuned German cars. You take any German car, what's beautiful about German cars is their engineering. You open up the hood and you listen to that engine. You see the engine, how neatly and beautifully it's designed. The world was once put together that way. It was integrated. But ever since we chose to not live according to our design, it's like taking that German car, brand new, opening up the hood, putting a wrench, and dropping it in the middle of that engine. What happens? It's still going to run for a while. It's still going to work. You're going to hear some clanking and and, and stuff like that. It's going to run poorly, but it's going to work for a while. But you will never optimize it, and it eventually breaks down because disintegration starts to take hold. One day, you may be running well right now. It's because you're young and you're beautiful. One day, the disintegration becomes permanent. There are many examples. Some of them are relational. God calls us to forgive. Some of them are relational. Some of them are social. God calls us to be just. God calls us to be generous. Some of the laws are political or civil. God says, if you disobey, creation will begin to deconstruct and order turns to entropy. And that is not supernatural. There's no lightning bolt happenstance that takes place. It's just natural. The plagues are not magic. It's about what holds the world, what actually holds your lives, our lives together. That's what it's about. What God's saying through the plagues, to be completely under my kingship is to be fully alive. That's how you become free. That's how you will flourish. That's how you will thrive. To move away from my rule 
To move away from my will is to destroy yourself. It's going to cascade your life into a world of chaos and darkness and disintegration in your life in every dimension until one day it rolls and unravels and unravels and unravels and then bursts you into a life forever in eternity of disintegration. Do you see that? So you have God being a singular God and then the plagues teach us, the very nature of the plagues and how they're designed teaches us that God is our creator and we were built according to his design and his laws were really intended so that we would flourish and thrive. The third point is God is our redeemer. An interesting thing that happens here about these plagues, and scholars, they, they note this, God kind of holds back. God's pulling his punches. Because when you look at it from one angle, it looks like the plagues are judgment. And in a way, it kind of is. But God here, he's not hammering Pharaoh. He's not hammering Egypt into submission. The reason why you see this, you see subtle hints here. In chapter 9, right before the plague of the hailstorm, God sends Moses to Pharaoh. He sends him again and he says, I want you to get, the ca- get your cattle, get the farmhands out of the field because there's a storm coming. There's a storm coming, so I want you to get the farmhands, get the cattle. They're going to get hurt. Move them out of the fields. What kind of judge does that? What kind of judge would do that? I mean, if the plagues were just intended to destroy, if the plagues were just intended to just create mayhem, why would God do that? And it's because God is a judge, but he's a redeeming judge. God is a judge, but he's a compassionate judge. Only a compassionate judge would do that. It's because the whole point of the plagues was not to destroy, but to save. It's to redeem. First, God uses these plagues to save his people, to save God's people from slavery. Through the judgment, through these plagues, he saves the people are given a way out. They're given a way to freedom. Secondly, there's this place in chapter 9 where God says to Pharaoh, right in the middle of all the plagues, as we kind of wrap, wrap up, in chapter 9 he says, by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and the people with a plague that will wiped you off the face of the earth. But I raised you up. He's talking to Pharaoh. He says, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What's God saying here? What he's saying is that through this story, through this old story, through this story, another story will come out that will be told to millions over centuries. Through this smaller, episodic story of salvation, there will come a revelation of God redeeming his people in this book and throughout the Bible and all the Bible so that the entire world will understand what it means to be sinful, what it means to be saved, what it means to be freed, true freedom. And so the plagues were really designed in that in that era, the plagues were designed, and for us, they were designed to wake us up. They were designed to wake us up. There's this place, again, in chapter 9, where, where the Egyptians actually start to fear, and you start to see the tide starting to turn, because they actually start to do what God is asking them to do. What this means is that God's approach to judgment is not, uh, well, God's approach to judgment uh, is, uh, is, uh, God's approach to salvation is not uh, despite 
or in spite of his judgment, it's salvation through the judgment of God. He's not saying, yeah, there's judgment and then now I'm going to save, save my people. It's through the judgment, through the brokenness, through the destruction, through the seeing mayhem, God is saving his people. He judges in order to save. And even for the people around, the Egyptians and the like, it's to wake us up. This is why he's such a unique God. And this story, this narrative, continues long after Moses. It continues century later when another darkness came. In Genesis chapter 1, the darkness came. God creates the sun and the moon. Here in the last plague, you see God wiping out the sun and the moon. Darkness is across the land. It, it's the ultimate sign that sin deconstructs nature, deconstructs our design, deconstructs creation. Centuries later, we see this again. Jesus comes. And Jesus comes, and when he stretches out his hands, it's not to bring plagues. Jesus doesn't bring the plagues with him. He brings miracles. And if you notice something about these miracles, they're not necessarily displays of his power either. Whereas Moses, if he stretches out his hand, the plagues came and you saw death and destruction and mayhem. But when Jesus stretches out his hand, you see restoration and healing and feeding. Why? What Jesus is doing as he comes is he's restoring the brokenness, restoring the chaos. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. But then in John chapter 9, what does he do? He demonstrates what's that, what that means by what? He heals a blind man. There's darkness in his life, and he brings him light. He's restoring order. He's restoring order so that we will thrive in accordance with our design. Do you see that? He's restoring life to its design. And that happens all the way up until you see the greatest miracle, Matthew chapter 27. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth shook and the rock split. What's going on? On the cross, Jesus Christ alone faced the wrath of God. The full force of the wrath of God. Here in Exodus, God is holding back. He's kind of pulling his punches. But on the cross, Jesus Christ alone faced the full force of the wrath of God. And God did not hold back. On the cross, all the plagues of God's judgment, all the plagues of God's wrath, his power, the power of God's justice fell on Christ. And there was darkness that covered the land. In other words, Jesus Christ experienced the full chaos. Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate disintegration of being cut off from God. In other words, he was experiencing hell on the cross. Complete separation. He said, I am forsaken. Complete separation from God. I'm experiencing the ultimate darkness, the ultimate chaos. The, my body and my soul are being ripped apart. My heart is being torn apart. The Trinity is experiencing, the Trinity is the ultimate representation of integration and coherence. And yet on the cross, as Jesus is being forsaken by his Father, the Trinity there is experiencing the ultimate experience of disintegration. And why? Jesus experiences the ultimate darkness so that we can be given our redemption. We can experience our ultimate exodus. Do you see? Jesus Christ suffered the plagues of God's judgment and darkness so that through that judgment, through that judgment, God's people would be saved. The ultimate miracle, salvation through judgment. 
Jesus Christ took our place. Jesus Christ is the true judge, the true king, the true God who came not to bring judgment, but to bear God's judgment. The creator of the world, it says in John chapter 1, creator of the world, he went to the cross to be disintegrated for you. The creator became unmade so that we could become remade. New birth, new life. Do you see that? Jesus Christ was, forg- was forsaken. Why? So that we could be forgiven. Jesus Christ was rejected. Why? And in his rejection, in, his, in the abandonment, it said in Isaiah chapter 53, that he was cast out from the land of the living. To experience that is to experience hell. Why? So that we could experience life to the full. That you may thrive and flourish. That makes Christianity very, very unique. Very unique. Why? Every other religion, you have to work at it. You have to try hard. Every other religion relies on your merit, your record, your efforts. But if you live like that, that's going to lead to disintegration. It's going to lead to unrest. It's going to lead to darkness and chaos. Why? Because it's going to make you anxious. It's going to make you jealous. You're going to fall apart inside. You're going to fall apart internally. There's always going to be this battle because you're going to be jealous and anxious and proud and uncertain and angry and insecure and judgmental. Do you see that? Only the gospel ends snobbishness. Only the gospel cures us of our jealousy. Only the gospel to know that Jesus Christ, the high king, became disintegrated for his creation so that we, sinners, could be reconciled, have access to God our Father, and be integrated with him again. And that is life. Do you see that? We can be restored to our design. A Christian isn't a Christian because he worked at it. A Christian sees his sin. A Christian sees the judgment of God. A Christian sees the plagues unraveling in his life. A Christian sees the cross. A Christian wakes up because the Spirit of God has opened his heart to see that he's saved through his brokenness, through his sinfulness. He is saved through the brokenness and, the brokenness and righteousness of Christ. And in spite of his works, in spite of his record, in spite of his merit, a Christian says, in spite of my trying, that that trying, Martin Luther said, we have to repent of our damnable good works. In spite of our trying, in spite of our record, in spite of our works, God saved us through the ultimate judgment that fell on Christ. That should humble us. A Christian is humble because we did nothing to merit this favor of God, this love of God. And yet, because of the gospel, a Christian has joy. You know why? There is nothing we can do to lose the favor of God and the love of God. Do you see that? Jesus Christ received everything that we deserved so that we could receive everything that Jesus deserved. Why do we obey? One, because God is unique. There is none like him in all the earth. There's no God, there's no king that will love you and be faithful the way God is faithful and the way he loves. There's no God like that. There's no God who so meticulously created his people and then built all the, the, the spiritual ecosystem in our lives so that we could live and thrive and flourish in our faithfulness to him. None like that. 
Secondly, he designed our souls. He designed us. So disobedience leads to chaos and darkness. Thirdly, because Jesus is our judge. And yet God bore the judgment for our sins. So to disobey God, to disobey his laws, you're not just trampling on those laws. You're not just rejecting something that he's saying to you. Because Jesus Christ is the judge and yet bore the judgment to disobey, out of of his great love for us, to disobey him is to trample on his heart. He who loved us, he who came for us, he who died for us, he who carries us, he who sustains us, he who governs us. Do you see that? What this calls us to be intimate with Christ. Be intimate with the Lord. That's what scripture is to know scripture, to worship God, to immerse your life in prayer. That's what it means to be intimate with him, to know him, to return to him, to love him, to be reconciled to him. If your life, if the way you believe is not shaping you to love Jesus more, to be intimate with God more, It's not transforming your life in a way that you are changing. What that actually could mean is that your heart is actually hard, like the Pharaoh's. You know, even the Pharaoh, even the Pharaoh had moments where he was changing his mind. But in the end, he returned to what he really believed, to what he really relied on. What about you? Will you be intimate with the Father today? and know him because he's so he knows you he does he created us he knows us every dimension and he proved how much he desires to know his people by sending his only son to experience the ultimate plagues of judgment that we could know him know him let's pray